industry influencer, growth mastermind, successful entrepreneur, and limitless. These are some of the words I took away from my conversation with Stephanie Bogan. Stephanie has done it all in our industry, from building a company that went on to sell to a Fortune 200 company, and then helping lead client experience for United Capital. Stephanie has taken the knowledge from her days as a startup to working at influential larger companies to help spark success and growth for other financial advisors across the country. Stephanie's passion is to help advisors and executives in our industry achieve unlimited success, wealth, and happiness, and her experiences drive these solutions. And today, we're lucky enough to talk through some of this with Stephanie. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Stephanie, thanks for joining us on Bridging the Gap. How are you doing this week from Costa Rica? I'm happy. Thank you for asking. How are you doing? I am doing great. I'm doing great. So we were talking a little bit before we got on the air uh, on the air about your uh, you living in Costa Rica, five years strong. Uh, tell us what drove you to uh, Costa Rica and working from down there. From- uh, you know, it was it was sort of it sort of really layers into sort of the, the right the business story that everybody's always so interested in, which is I think as you know I started my first firm when I was 24, business consulting firm in obviously financial services space. Sold it 12 years later to Genworth. Joined the executive team of, of the Fortune 200 company. There it was a great experience. I joke that I learned so much about how Fortune 200 companies work that I know I no longer needed to work for one. Um, Took a year off, traveled the world, and then went to United Capital, as you know, to work on the, the business franchise and the client experience, which I loved doing. It was an amazing experience. was able to have a huge impact. But in spite of all of that success, like a lot of successful people, something was missing. I, I've sort of referred to myself as the princess in the pea. Like I had every comfort. I had every convenience. I was successful by every measure. I'd been named an industry influential. I wrote a column for Financial Planning Magazine. I'd spoken it, right? It was, you know, Bloomberg called and invited me to write a book, like check, check, check. And, and we had an amazing company. We did great work. We had a great reputation and yet something was missing, right? I couldn't quite figure it out. And so I sort of did what a lot of people do, which is I just kept at it. Like I would just try harder. I'll manage my time better, right? And it was a, I was the business expert. So surely there is a solution to this problem. And what I came to is there might be, it just wasn't on the path that I was on. And I just sort of knew that it was time for a change. I, like a lot of type A, very successful driven people was go, go, go. So in hindsight, I'm what I'm able to say is I was really good at being a human doing I wasn't particularly good at being a human being. Mm. And so I really, when we, when we decided to leave in Mr. Costa Rica, we just decided like we sold the company. I didn't need to work anymore. Our children were three and six at the time. We've traveled all over the world. We just thought this would be a great fun thing to do for a year. And so I came down to Costa Rica with my family and had copious amounts of time on my hand and I'm a type air. So, right. I took over the PTA, which is, Five years and I'm retiring. Um, but what I did was I started studying things that were really interesting to me and that I had always studied, but now I had a lot of time on my hands, which was the science of success and leadership, but also now happiness and well-being. Like I knew how to be successful. I knew how to make money. I knew how to help other people do it. Check, check, check. But how to do that and, and have that sense of peace and well-being to be able to be really driven towards a goal and yet still be at peace along the way, which I know for a lot of entrepreneurs is the hard part. Mm -hmm. And so that really led me to, 
the study of performance leadership and neuroscience and now quantum physics and epigenetics. And so that's sort of been the shift for me, which was what I learned was the reason that I unretired. Um, I'm unretired to 20 hours a week from beach in Costa Rica. So, so, so it's not typical unretirement. Um, but it's really sort of what I'm about now, which is I spent 20, 22 years, right, being the business expert. And that was awesome. And I still do that. And I love business. Uh, we're going to talk about, right, how tech really layers into that and the impact that it can have. It's a really huge lever to pull that businesses really underutilize. But what I learned, Matt, that was so critical is that it's our mindset that determines our level of success and happiness. So lots of neuroscience and research around this idea that there are three things that contribute to our success, environment, skill, and psychology or mindset. Okay, that's that's right, a big deal. The thing that literally blew my mind in Costa Rica was that what they've concluded is that greater than 80% of success and happiness is based on mindset. Not based on what best practice you're using, not what partnership model you have, not what custodian you're with, not even what technology you have, but sort of what's the way, what's the model by which you view and show up in the world. And so when I learned that, I thought, oh my God, this explains everything. And that just led, right, I've gone thousands and thousands of hours into the rabbit hole and that's why I unretired um, because I was just so compelled to share the message of what I learned with people in terms of the impact it can have on their performance. So in my old life, I used to talk to great CEOs, what I call chief executives, entrepreneurs, and, and business owners about high performance habits. Right, we've got the business and then a personal level, right? How do you show up at the absolute top of your game? And now what I talk about is how to create high performance happiness, how to be driven, how to have a huge goal, how to have impact, and how do you how do you do that with a quality of life that allows you to really enjoy the ride? So I call it building a wildly successful business and life that you love. Um, so that's how I ended up literally here on the beach, and that's how I decided to unretire and, and to do it 20 hours a week. That's what works for me in terms of where I am in my life. And so that's the business is built around that. I, uh, I, I love that and I can respect that. I think being in the in the moment of kind of that drive, I can, I can relate uh, to you and I can commend you on uh, that ability of learning that. So I, uh, I, I wanna learn more about that. And I wanna, we're gonna try to lump some of that in, some of your findings from that research and, and those hours of, of learning uh, and tailor it towards the financial advisory world. Um, but given your your past experiences and your continued experiences with working with all these financial advisors and you're being a veteran in the industry, you know, I would love to know how you think our industry has evolved since you first started with your your consultancy agency, you know, tw- twenty plus years ago. How has this industry, from your eyes, evolved? Um, and and where do you think this industry kind of has missed out? I'd love to hear some of that. Uh, so I think it's interesting because I've been in, let's see, what, at 24, 46, so 22 years now, so dating myself. <laughs> um, it's fine. It is what it is. And so here's the thing. When I started, everybody was a mom and pop shop. And what I've really seen and helped to hopefully drive along with some other great leaders is this idea of irrespective of how you define it, at, at, at any level you're in a business, whether that business is a lifestyle practice by choice, not, not necessarily, I, I believe in decision over default, whether you're trying to build right, a multi-billion dollar mega firm with a national footprint, at the end of the day, sort of this thought about, hey, we're running a business and we have to look at it in a more enterprise-oriented or institutional way, it has been a really significant shift. But I also think it sort of leads to the second issue, the big shift I've seen, which is just sort of the different 
perspective of the generations. So, you know, a lot of my clients, right, are advisors, you know, 60 plus, right, they're the senior people in firm or chief, chief executives of some of these big firms in the industry. And at the end of the day, you've got another generation of advisors, multiple generations at this point, that came into a completely different model, right? 30 years ago, when a lot of my clients started, or 40 years ago, it was dialing for dollars. It was, if you didn't go out and sell something, you didn't put milk in the baby's bottle, and that, was, that did not make for a good night home. Like that's just the way it worked. And if you couldn't do that and do client service and fill out paperwork and see somebody at 11 o'clock at night, you went out and found a different business. Mm -hmm. So the people that have made it and then over the course of 20 or 30 years done great work for their clients and built these really successful firms have a very different perspective and mindset on the business, how to get started in his advisor, expectations, they have very different perspectives on technology and systemization, like they, they, I call it the old guard, so we can talk specifically about how that shows up. And then you have these younger generations of advisors who came into a profession, they joined a firm, and there are like law firms, right? There's the beginning of sort of levels, and we look at things like systems and technology and performance reporting, and we read books like Traction, and we bring them back. And so you have sort of this conflict of generations, right? The old way and the new way, and if you're if you're in an older, more mature firm and you can control that, that's fine. And if you're younger, you can control that. But but where we are in the market, because of just age and demographics, we see this huge overlap, right? These younger advisors are coming into these older firms and it creates all sorts of, you know, we talk about in, in the coaching we do, we talk now about mindset and methods, right? The methods are you have a system, you do this, you do that. But when you're developing a system or you're implementing technology, the decision in terms of how you evaluate a problem, how you make the decision to make or not make an investment, how you evaluate ROI, how you get, how you train, launch and train on it, how you get adoption, right? Putting someone in a chair, spinning it around three times and telling them to click their heels together is not training, um, right? So you, do you want something you use or do you want shelfware, right? So, but there is a generational mindset, again, not to stereotype, but in general, there is sort of a, a business psychology to firms leadership and that will determine as much as anything else, how they perform, how they outperform or optimize and in your case, right, how they use technology and how they even go through a process of using it versus buying it versus actually making the most of it, which almost no one does. Right. Well, what's the difference? I mean, let's go down that path, right? The psychology of the leadership, right? So talk to me about those companies that you see that have the psych the right psychology what's what is the right psychology look like and then what is the wrong psychology look like when you have that overlap right i mean you see it every day so the listeners that are listening i mean how do they define them so how do they identify where they are well look it, it really is sort of a it's an attitude in terms of you know if, where are you leaning are you leaning into the future are you in that sort of what i call the movable middle where you're you're like we're open we're implementing technology but we're not we're not like all in right we're not whole hog on this like we don't think about technology as the first right it's not the go-to for everything first and foremost and then you've got firms that are like i will only use it i mean there are still advisors out there who don't have a computer in their office and for them at this point it should stay that way right that like it just makes perfect sense they're not going to make that shift so it's really i think there's sort of an attitudinal decision that firms should make about what their relationship with technology is like there's no right or wrong answer. That's the beauty of it. It's just where do you want to be on the spectrum and then how do you manage your business model to that? If you're going to be 
forward thinking and progressive, like I do work with Ron Carson's firm, right? They're building out a, what I would consider to be a world-class, fully integrated client experience platform, mm-hmm. right? So we're working on, right, what does world-class look like? Not just from a functional perspective, but a behavioral perspective, and then integrating that with technology at every single touch point in the client experience. Now they're able to do that on a much larger scale than many firms because of the size that they are, but that attitude of technology as a key business stakeholder is I think what puts people in the progressive realm, which is where I think you're gonna be more competitive and see higher performance. Um, it so really sort of circles me back to the first question you asked in terms of those shifts. And I mentioned, right, the actual move to businesses, whether you're a practice or a big firm, right, I think it's just a decision you make. I don't think a little practice means you're not in a business. The, the sort of the generational psychology that we talked about. And the third, I think, that layers in here to this conversation is technology is a driver of the future of planning, which is really going to be about, in my view, advice and experience. Investments are commoditized. Right before I unretired, I gave a speech at Schwab. It was very where I was like, planning's going to be commoditized too, because anything anyone can punch into a computer can ultimately be scaled and commoditized, which leaves what? Right. So a lot of the research that we did at United and that I've done since is really that advice and experience are going to be the value differentiators. That's what's going to allow everybody to not get swallowed up by consolidation or get put out of business by Amazon. But at the end of the day, the way to systematize a specialized experience is with process and platform, which is process and technology. Mm-hmm. And so I think the firms that are leaning harder into that, irrespective of size, because people really like to make this a big firm, small firm lifestyle versus you know mature firm. And I don't think that's what it is. I think there are going to be lots of opportunities for smaller firms to license resources or purchase resources, right? More providers are going to come in the space and create a platform that they can't afford to create on their own. So I think a firm can decide their tech psychology and then decide where tech plays in that. And, and I think, you know, the psychology thing, because I think a lot of people say that they want to be progressive and we're going to get into why this industry is such slow to adopters of technology. Everybody says, yeah, I want technology. And then when it's like, all right, start using like, whoa, 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 this is too quick for me. But, you know, I, I think you bring up a good point about the, the big firm versus the small firm. My, my, the challenge that I've, I've, I've seen with, with some small firms as I've talked to them is it's a time thing, right? The, what you're, if you want to do it the right way, you know, you gotta, you gotta really put some time into developing the processes, developing the workflow, adopting the technology, understanding the technology, integrating the technology. When you're a shop of two or three people and you're trying, you're still trying to grow, you know, keep food on the table, the markets may go haywire. You just don't have the time. And so how do you help? How, how can someone think through that and really kind of create the time? I mean, you've created time. You know how to, you know how to do that well. So how, how can a, a, a smaller advisory firm do that? So what I always tell clients, I tell advisors this all the time, is you never have a time problem. You don't. There's no such thing. You have a priority problem. And so that's what you've got. In the, in the situation that you described, you have a sea of competing priorities. And we all look, we all get to that point, whether you're me or someone else, you still get to the point where you can have more priorities than you have time, right? I, I deal with that more at 20 hours a week than I did at 40 or 60. But what, it, what I realize is it's really about what you focus on. And so we have this phrase that we use all the time, which is, are you making work or are you moving the needle? So yes, in a small practice, there's work that has to be done, right? If you don't have an assistant, you've got to do that work. Or if you have one assistant, it's you and that person, doing everything. But at the end of the day, it really starts with mindset, which is what are the priorities that like what's run the shop? 
What do you have to do on a daily basis? And how do you do that with the absolute most efficiency and effectiveness? Systems and technology are part of that. But you can do a lot in the absence of that, right? A one-page checklist with the eight steps that you just follow every time will actually suffice until you get your big fancy tech system. Mm -hmm. But most advisors, I think most entrepreneurs get so busy working in the business that it's really hard to make the time to work on the business. And at the end of the day, the answer is you either, right? There's what I call fast, good, and cheap. Pick two. So there's fast and good, but it's not going to be cheap, right? Go out and hire yourself some help. There's good and cheap, but it's not fast. So you're going to chunk it out in an hour a day or here or there in between, right? Your work and the kids' little league game, and it'll get done when it gets done. Um, there's only like a few exceptions, which are almost all like little Mexican food dives on the corner somewhere, right? They are fast, good, and cheap. But outside of that, you get to pick two. And so, look, at the end of the day, it's really about what your objectives are and how bad you want it, right? I know I've got clients who will set up a 30-day spread and say, look, I just am committing to get this particular priority done because it's going to move the needle, right? It's going to actually make a difference in my time and the service I deliver and the, the revenue that we are in, like some meaningful measure. Mm-hmm. And so step one is you just have to get galactically honest with yourself about why stuff's not getting done. And the truth is we are so full of distractions. The average person is distracted six to seven times a minute. The average person checks email at least 17 times a day. And I think that's a really conservative number. And so when you think about the amount of time that we spend in our email, and I've yet to meet a person that says to me, Matt, you know what? The amount of time I spend in email is awesome. It adds incredible value to my business. That is high value, high impact time. I wish I were doing that all day long. No one's ever given me that speech. And it's because everybody knows you don't need to be a business expert to know it's a galactic time suck. And yet we do it. I could give you all the behavioral reasons why we do it. But like when we go in and we work with firms, step one is what is the personal performance of the revenue producers? Because in this business, time is your greatest revenue producing asset. If you don't control your time, you don't control your business. And so I can give you 17 business things, but at the end of the day, the average advisor does not control their time. They don't control their focus. And as a result, they are working in the business and basically it's running them. They're not running it. And so so you say that the reason, because I'm, I want to dive down this hole a little bit because I I think it's such a, I think it's such an interest and I'm a behavior. I love uh, just behavioral psychology, behavioral economics. I think it's really interesting. I think it can help advisors manage their clients better too. But um, the time thing, right? So when you go into a firm and you see them, is it a matter of, hey, you have to reprioritize your, you have to reprioritize your priorities. I mean, you have to reprioritize what's important. But, and it's easy for you to go in and say that. And for me, you know, thinking in my advisor days, like, yeah, I understand. Like I should be calling my clients more as opposed to sitting in email. How do you get them to take that action? What are the ten, what are the tactics you can put into place to get them to, to really understand that? Uh, well, the honest answer is we don't start with methods. So I had two calls with uh, advisors in our coaching program this week, and they both reached out in very different ways with the same question, which was, I've made these decisions. I know I need to do this stuff. Why aren't I doing it? Like, I'm not thought, like, how many of your listeners 
are those sort of creative, visionary go-go's and we have all these great ideas and we, oh, we're going to buy that new tech platform or we're going to get that new performance software and then we get it and then within like 37 seconds it's not shiny anymore and we move on to the next thing and so we just spend all this time and money creating right some really expensive software. Mm-hmm. Why do we do that? So the first thing, and this is where that shift occurred for me, which was it's never a what question, it's a why question which is if it's really important to you, and in this particular case, they were both having a hard time. One was really struggling with implementing on the niche that he knew he wanted to implement, and the other was struggling with going to his clients and explaining that they needed to pay for the value that he was providing. And they were both completely clear at a business level that this is what they needed to do, but they couldn't quite get to it. So instead of starting with, okay, your action plan is gonna be X, Y, or Z, I need you to call five people a day, I asked what was really holding it back, and within like four minutes, we get to, oh wait, I'm, I guess I'm really avoiding this because I don't really think I'm worth it, or because I'm actually afraid of what, what's that success going to look like, or what if my clients all run out of the building, you know, leave me, run out of the building, and I have no more clients, and I, you know, I starve to death and I die, right? Like that's literally where your brain goes when it's faced with any kind of a threat. And so whether people know it or not, and this is where I think it could be really helpful because technology, some people are like, let's do it. And a lot of people really struggle with implementing it because of the fundamental reason that change is a hard behavior. And so at the end of the day, this isn't about buying and implementing technology. Nope, that's a method. It's a mindset, which is we're creating a significant operational change that's going to touch like the daily life of the people here. So one of our clients implemented a technology we were talking about two weeks ago about it. And they're, uh, we just helped them like look for, right, they're building a partnership and doing a merger. And as a result of that, of course, the technology is gonna have to change. And let's just call the staff the sort of the old guard. They are very resistant to change. You know, they love the idea, but the application doesn't exactly follow through. And so they've been really trying to implement the change and then call when they were having problems. And the answer was, well, it's not, a, it's not a function of technology. It's not even a function of training. It's a function of getting them to actually engage in the change, which starts with understanding that any change, even good ones, even ones that you want, put your brain in fight or flight mode. Mm. That's just the way change is. So they've actually done studies. If I scanned your brain when I said to you, uh, we're giving you a whole new podcast platform tomorrow and you're not going to get to test it, but you're going to have to do an interview. And I scanned your brain when I said there's a hungry tiger, turn around, that, that the same centers in your brain would be activated. So this is where what people don't realize, and I get like literally obsessive about, is how powerful mindset and our brain is. It's what I call owning your mind. And what I mean by that is if your behavioral response to a change is, I don't want to do that, how likely is that change to take place in an office quickly and efficiently? It's just not, but we're, we're over here knocking on the door and we need to go around the back and actually find the real problem. And so what, what advisors are really well suited to know is that at the end of the day, our brains have the back part of our brain, which is like our prehistoric brain, our limbic system, is in pretty much in charge of everything about 95% of the time. So we have about 60,000 thoughts a day. 80% of those thoughts are negative. And the, what the neuroscience has shown is that we're basically operating on autopilot 95% of the time. So when your advisors ask people and their staff, this happens all the time, we have a new technology, we need to implement the workflows. We have a new system, we need to implement it. I was just in a firm in Missouri last week and they got a CRM, they built out workflows to the CRM and guess what's happening? 
Nobody's using it. Yes, nobody's using it. And this was the conversation I had. This isn't a technology conversation. This is a behavior conversation. You're asking them to change. So deep down, they're like, no, no, no. Now, people have different personalities when it comes to change. Those are pretty easy to figure out. And so what we did was, okay, how do we actually create the change in the organization in a way that A, that they'll adopt it, and B, it will stick? And so I think that's the issue is we don't get our teams together and say, hey, guys, we're going to engage this change. What are the pros? What are the cons? What questions and concerns do you have? How can we address those in front of it? And so when they're just very basic strategies that when you do them and you know how the brain works, you disarm a lot of those defenses. So when you ask the question, like say, here's the game plan, here's what we're thinking of doing, what problems do you guys foresee? People go, oh, oh yeah, well, let's put our heads to this. Mm-hmm. But then when you say, okay, where do we think we can solve for those problems? They go into problem solving mode instead of I don't want to mode. And then we go, hey, and where do we see the opportunities if we were to make a switch like this? Now they're engaged. Now they go, oh, we were able to do this, which is very different than coming in and saying, we just bought XYZ new software. We're going to start using it next month. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's a matter of, yeah, it's a matter of bringing, I think that, um, and I'd be interested to hear your your point of view. I mean, it's the, the leadership teams that are able to um, collaborate effectively with their with their teams in order to have everybody have have a say, but really not have, I mean, have a say in it, even though the visionary of the company may be the CEO that wants to do this change. How do you incorporate everybody in that decision to make it their own decision? Because everybody's going to adopt something when they think it's their own, as opposed to when they are told to do something. And and that's what makes a visionary leader when it comes to, that's why slow adoption of technology is prevalent within our industry, because the old guard, as you mentioned, they didn't do it that way. They don't need to do it that way. And so they're not, they're just going to make decisions on the fly because that's how they built their firms initially. It was just them and another person. They built it that way to start out with. So um, and I think it's a great point that you're mentioning. The, the answer is really that when I work with leadership teams, like in right, larger RAs or, or institutions, we now work with the entire leadership team. So it's what's the vision and strategy, what are the priorities the team is working on to execute, and then how do we make sure that we're working with each person on that team so that they're engaged in a way that that the leadership team is able really to drive a change and then ask themselves the question, the really tough questions of any initiative we do in an organization, right? Whether I'm working with a Fidelity or a Carson, what, what, what these large firms always want is we have a strategy, we need to make sure we design it well and it works, and then we need to launch it in a way that we actually get adoption. And that's where for 90% of institutions or large enterprises, that's where things fall down. Scaling it and still retaining adoption and getting the outcome and the experience that you want. So one is sort of how do you look at that a leadership team? But the second is that's what those phone calls are about is how do we actually create engagement so that we get adoption? And so whether it's in right the, a five-person RIA or right a 5,000-person institution, at the end of the day, involvement equals investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it gets back. Yeah, I mean, it gets back to having. I, I always talk about it. Like the the two things that you need to have is a, is your company wide to stand under, you know, foundationally. But then you have to have a culture of learning. If you don't have a culture of learning, you're never going to adopt or have the adoption rate or the ROI that you're expecting. Yeah, and then look at a, at a method level, right? So you've got to have the mindset piece, but then you actually have to have the methods, which is how do you set priorities? How do you engage launch? How do you lay out training? What's your feedback loop, right? So. 
So there's structurally like how firms have their management systems, how they right, do their visioning and their performance reporting, all of that layers into how this execution happens. So it's really, it's just change management is right. Whatever priority I'm working on is whatever priority that organization has identified. But at the end of the day, it's about leadership and team performance and change management. And then if you're in an organization that has a lot of advisors under you, it's about how do you create scale and adoption in your case, right, with, with technology, but it applies equally to anything else. All right. So a couple more questions and I want to get into buy, sell, but uh, within a lot of your content that you write about, um, you talk about this idea of spark, of sparking um, success, wealth, and happiness. Can you elaborate on what that means uh, and how it would relate to financial advisors? Yeah. So, you know, I shared my story and I think, you know, here's what I took from my own journey and then reflecting on, right, working with hundreds, thousands of advisors over the last 20 years. And what I realized is most entrepreneurs that I've ever met with want what I now call the five freedoms. So I call it the five freedoms of limitless advisors. Um, But it's applicable really to any entrepreneur, which is one, do work with purpose on your terms, right? I'm doing work that I feel really driven to do because I think it's just so darn impactful and it radically changed my life and I want to help other people do that. On my terms is from 20 hours a week on a beach in Costa Rica. Those are my terms. If you're comfortable with that, great. Love to talk to you. Mm -hmm. If you're not comfortable with that, no worries. I won't take it personally. There's someone who's happy to help you. Uh, The second is doing work that you love. I clearly love what I do, right? I believe that people, and I don't just mean in general, but as financial advisors, we go into sort of this idea of energy creating and energy draining activities, which tend to also be revenue producing or not revenue producing activities. And many advisors still aren't spending 70 or 80% of their time on energy creating revenue producing activities, which is why they once really loved what they do, but now they're bored with it or they're tired of the struggle or they just write it isn't quite what they had hoped it would be when they got there. So I really think that doing work that you love is important. And I think we all want to do that. The third is with people you enjoy, both your clients and your team. You should actually like and enjoy working with the people that you're around. Uh, Freedom number four is everyone always likes this uh, one, which is enjoy all the financial success you desire. Right. That's what I love about business is it's a complete level playing field. Right. I know people who've been working for 20 years to scrape together two hundred thousand dollars in revenue. And I have clients who've been in business for seven years and take home more than a million dollars. Right. So like, how is that? It's mindset and methods. It's right. How you move those pieces. Um, but when you figure that out, there's no limit to what you can. This is like one of the most awesome businesses you can be in. You get to have a huge impact on people's lives and you can do really well doing it. Uh, and then the fifth is, and this is the one that I struggled with, and I think there are a lot of probably really successful people listening who may share it, like, hey, I've kind of got the first four nailed, but the fifth is live a life of happiness, fulfillment, and contribution. Like, how can you, and it's not about retiring or unretiring, right? I'm working again. And I think for a lot of us, the question you'll probably relate to this is, how do I keep my edge and still drive hard and right, do that go thing and conquer that mountain? And still be kind of like chilled out in the zen and bliss because we're usually one or the other. Mm-hmm. And so that's like, I feel like that's the, for, the frontier that I'm forging, which is okay. I'm chilled out. I'm doing this stuff. I'm doing all this stuff with my family. I run the PTA, right? I'm doing my yoga and my surf lessons and trying to practice Spanish. And I'm running a multi-million dollar company in 20 hours a week. Can I, can I do that? Can I like be on it and on my edge and like do awesome stuff? And then go into chill mode and not be all like in my head all night. And that's what I mean by 
sort of happiness and well-being, which is just great to be successful. Money's awesome. Gives you lots of freedom and flexibility. I'm not discounting that by any measure, but it's not the only measure. And so what I absolutely know is that whether you are a little advisor just starting out or you're running a mega firm, it is utterly possible to build a wildly successful business and the life that you love, but it requires that you do work. It's just not the work everybody thinks it is. It's not just methods. It's really adding that mindset piece and really saying, who am I? What's my vision for this business? How do I want it to work for my life in terms of impact? What's the impact I want to have? And then how do I make that happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I um, I love that. And if I'm able to get on, you know, get you back on, I think we could dive even deeper into that and have a, because uh, I think that, and that's where people can come and follow you and learn more about that. Because I think that that's something that, uh, having that balance is so key um, because of you know the job that we're doing and the impact we want to have, but we get so caught up in that and we don't listen to ourselves. So I, I want to uh, the before last question before buy sell, and we're going a little bit over, which I'm uh, I'm okay with because this is intriguing. Is uh, I always like to ask people to take out the crystal ball and look forward, you know, five ten years in this industry. Uh, I'm going to ask you ten years out. Where do you see? this industry and how and try to describe to people how you think it will look different than it does today so i think those are always fun questions i will caveat that with whatever i say it's going to be different (laughs) for the very reason that i'm going to say what i'm going to say which is i think there are going to be some radical shifts i don't know exactly what they're going to be i really have i have some ideas and inclinations we can chat about those but at the end of the day, what, what I know is there's sort of this ongoing sort of debate, right? This unspoken discussion in the industry of, right, are the Amazons and the Googles going to get in and, right, disintermediate us? Are the Vanguards and the Betterments and the Schwab's $30 a month plan going to come in and disintermediate us? And you almost have like that um, record store travel agent conversation, Right. Well, we do something special. We're always going to be here. Everybody wants to come into the record store. And we know we know what happened to those industries. That said, this one is different. Right. It is like accounting or architecture. Right. It is a profession. It is not a product. And so the, the underlying foundation of it is advice. And so what here's what I know is to be true, that the rate of change in technology is accelerating, right? Moore's law and all of that. Like if you think about what you were doing with technology 20 years ago, 20 years ago, I had a brick phone, like literally the brick, that's why they could write. You remember that? And now look at what we're doing. And so fast forward 10 years, we can't even envision at this point what, like what's actually being built, right? Uber just invested you know, money in uh, planes because, right, they're trying to, they're in Dubai, they're flying people in these little planes or flying back, right? It's going to radically change, self-driving cars. And so it really is about, not about how we get disintermediated, but how we differentiate. And so that's why when you look at the nuts and bolts of planning and investing and, right, wealth management in totality, a lot of it can be commoditized. So fighting that, I think, is, right, an utterly futile task. What I do with clients, particularly larger firms who are looking to how are we going to differentiate and capitalize on this opportunity is where's the differentiation? And really, whether you're a small firm or a large enterprise, the future is going to be advice and experience. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, you can't, you can't commoditize that. Now, AI is going to come in 
and it's going to radically change things. Now, how much is that is going to hit in the next 10 years? I don't know, but I was reading a couple of weeks ago, Fidelity's invested tens of millions of dollars in AI and virtual reality. Why? Because at some point, it's entirely possible that your conference room is a white room with a, with a projector or a computer in it, and your clients or you are getting projected into, right, 3D, you're having a meeting. Like, that's going to happen at some point. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's in the next 10 years, but I know it's definitely in the realm of possibility. So, look, if you're an advisor that's 65 plus, you're probably thinking, okay, I don't need to worry about this. But, and you're right, your clients probably in the, in the span of their lifetime probably aren't going to leave you. If you're under that window, it's not that your clients are all going to run out of the building. It's not that prices are going to get cut by 80% and you're going to have to compete. But we're already seeing firms feel a huge uptick in their need to deliver service and value in exchange for the fees. And I think as technology comes in and starts to create opportunities for firms to scale and leverage, it's a huge opportunity for firms that are forward thinking around technology who are what I call tech first firms, which is, okay, we always look to technology for the solution. It's scalable, it's systemizable, which means we can control the experience. And advice is a specialized experience, which is why some people go, oh, well, you can't replace us. Anytime mm -hmm. mm -hmm. you can't, you should just always worry. But at the end of the day, there's also truth to that, which is it's a specialized experience. So I think 10 years from now, what you're going to see is the deep value is going to be an advice and experience for firms that charge, right, for the value that they deliver, who aren't sort of a scale and commodity player. And I think you're going to see technology drive the vast majority of that so that people are doing what I've been trying to get them to do for 20 years, which is show up and do your number one job, which is if you're an advisor, it's to think. It is to know what your client wants, to know, to your point, what's, what's behind the curtain of what's holding them back. It's to understand how to get them from point A to point B from a technical and a relational perspective and to be able to give them the advice that they can trust and count on and an experience that sustains over their lifetime so that they can get to the outcome. Mm -hmm. And that's a function of people, process, and platform. But I think the amount that we rely on for people in that equation is probably going to shift a bit. Yeah, I can see that. And that, you know, you bring up that fidelity um, investment. I mean, it, they with that partnership with Amazon, I believe they created a virtual reality agent that basically was able to tell you all about your stocks um, just by standing in the room. So, you know, you visualize the having the meetings in a conference room, just visualize walking into a, a Schwab branch or a Fidelity branch or a your advisor's office and being greeted by a, a virtual reality agent that's mm -hmm. able to do everything. There is a, one of the commercials. We were in the States for spring breaks. It's when I get all the commercials that I get to <laughs> Half of them are still RX commercials, which is dreadful, but that's a separate conversation for a separate day. It was, uh, I don't know, it was Chase or one of the banks. It was Chase Cafe or Capital One Cafe. Mm -hmm. And it's like these cafes that they're doing. Like there's a teller kind of sort of, but it basically it's like a hangout place to do your banking. So yeah, you, like if someone said to me, hey, there's going to be, like banks and institutions are going to have experienced cafes like that. And if you want to pop into the booth and have a virtual conversation with like, yeah, of course, that's like, that's what I mean by the shift is going to be radical. Now, again, I'm not predicting it's going to put anyone out of business. I'm not predicting it's going to be the death of fees. But what I am saying is that shift is coming. And so it's really about when, when major shifts occur, 
The difference between those that excel and those that are extinct is all about in how they prepare for and embrace the change. That's what it's about. Can you see that it's coming and position your organization to figure out, you don't have to even be on the cutting edge of the wave. You don't have to go out and spend tens of millions of dollars, but you got to figure out how to stay at least right on the wave so that you can ride with right the momentum that you have. Otherwise, you're just going to be paddling against that wave. And I think that's what firms are starting to feel between compliance and the pressure to deliver more value for the same fee or firms that have only charged on investments Right when the market drops 30 or 40%, which it's going to do at some point, they still have to provide all those planning services and they're not charging a fee. And so how do the economics work? And if that's the case, then you really better be relying heavily on technology to keep your overhead down. And right. So I could go on forever. So I'll stop. Um, I think it's going to be a period of exchange. It's going to be really exciting for some people and really terrifying for others. Um, and I think you're, you're, you know, I, I just want to, uh, preface something that's coming up later in the show is my closing statement is going to align with exactly what you just talked about. And me and you did not talk about this prior to my closing statement thoughts. So, uh, I am a hundred percent in agreement. I want to move into some buy sell real quick. Just run through this. Basically the game was my, uh, attempt at bringing in the financial aspect of, uh, the commoditized trading aspect of investing maybe, uh, but buy sell, I'm going to give you one. One statement you say buy or sell buy you agree sell you disagree and you can just give a quick kind of one statement of why you go that way we'll see if you're a bull or a bear or maybe just riding the middle of the wave here for this one uh, all right so the first one is buy or sell delivering holistic financial advice to the mass affluent will be a profitable standalone business model in the next five years Bye. explain Ah, someone's got to someone's got to crack the nut. Like, there's just too much money in the middle, and yeah, there are a lot of advisors who are really focused on the high end of the market, and that's a phenomenal space. But there's in the aggregate, there's just too much money in the middle for someone not to do it. Now, the question is whether it's going to be a a quote pure financial firm, or if it's going to be right an Amazon or a Google or someone that just says, hey, you know what? There's a huge amount of money here, and we can do it on volume and scale, and they've got the capital to do it, and boom, they're in the game. All right. I agree. We're getting close to it, by the way. The profitable word was very key there, though. Um, Buy or sell. Financial advisors should be worried about new entrants into the space that come from, as you were just mentioning, big brands like Google or Amazon. Uh, I'll leave it there. All right. One more time. Sorry. Financial advisors should be worried about new entrants into the space that come from big names like you were alluding to, like Google and Amazon. Advisors should be scared of them in reality. Sell. So I don't believe in being scared of anything, right? I think you should be intelligently informed and aware of the shifts. Um, but I also think you look at it as an opportunity and you figure out look, in any ecosystem, there are big players and little players and medium players, and it's just figuring out what's your lane. Like, what lane are you going to swim in and just own the heck out of that lane? and you'll be fine. But advisors have this tendency to try to be all things to all people. They want to have a silo firm, but they want it to be an ensemble. They want it to be a partnership, but not really. They want to have minimums, but they don't really want to stick to them, right? So we just have a crisis of confidence in this industry that I think is is really the biggest detriment, whether it's around implementing technology or charging for the value that's delivered. Like that's the biggest hang up that I see in this space is not when you're not confident, it means you're fearful and you can't lean in and take advantage of opportunity from a place of fear. It's just not possible. Your brain can't get there. Own your way, own your lane. I love that. Buy or sell, 
The innovation gap between larger and smaller financial advisory firms will get so big in the next seven years that consolidation will be a necessity for small firms to survive. I'll say sell because I think necessity is a hard word. Like I don't like imperatives because they're right. That I know that's the point of the question to make it fun. Um, but here's what I can tell you is we were talking about consolidation, right? Five, six years ago when I retired and that's not going to happen and that's not going to happen. And there are some of your listeners who, who might be in this space, but I've got a handful of clients right now who are clients between 65 and 70. They're looking forward three to four years and going, wow, I'm going to be 69 to 73. Hmm. I really should have a game plan here. And I know I was just going to kind of build this thing up and die with my boots on, but I've now got a two or $3 million firm that's worth five, six, seven million dollars And that seems sort of silly. And I haven't really figured out the successor thing. That's a real challenge. And I don't really want to merge with someone and I don't really want to get bought up. And so all of a sudden these people are like, oh, what are my options? Well, there's United Capitals and there's right Carson Wealth. And, and so all of a sudden they're looking and saying, where before they were like, I'm never going to merge, I'm never going to sell, it's my, right, my way or the highway, I'll die you know, with, you know, with my boots on. And so all of a sudden these advisors are 68 staring down the barrel of 70, 72 going, oh, hmm. I'm going to need, I guess I'm going to need to do something. And because they haven't necessarily built out an internal succession plan, or, right, so that, that what I'm just seeing is sort of those barriers of I, I, I would never do that. I'm seeing those change, and so that's where I think I don't think I think it, necessity is a hard word, but I'm already seeing, and I think you're going to see more and more advisors look at that as an option when they really at some point earlier in their life cycle said, Yeah, that's never going to be for me. I think there's going to be some reevaluation. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. All right, last one. Buy or sell. We are peaking in regards to the innovation that will infiltrate the financial advisory industry. Sell. We're not even close to peaking. Like, we're literally just getting started. We're at the bottom of the hockey stick. Which can be scary to some people to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. No, truly. Like I said, if you're 65 or older and you're like, look, I just want to keep this thing rolling until I can right transition it or sell it and you know the next generation can sort it out like i've literally gone through that process with people where i just come in to do that process like what do you want to do with this thing just to help them figure it out and sometimes it makes sense to just say you know what we're going to shore it up for the next five years and then you guys can handle it and sometimes it's time to lean in and i think that's just the question that firms want to ask themselves as they think about those questions all right well that's another edition of buy or sell thank you stephanie for playing along um all right so i want to give you you know 90 seconds or so to give a closing thought and i'll I'll preface that you can go down this lane or you can go in a completely different lane if you want but just to give you some ideas uh what is one thing that an advisor can do today to help spark their business and drive towards a successful financial advisory business well, I think the first question I always ask people is what is it you want to build and why do you want to build it? And like, no joke, I either get a non-answer like, uh, or I get, oh, I just want to double my revenue. Okay, that's not an actual answer, right? What do you want to build and why do you want to build it? So the first question I always ask people is what's your version of the five freedoms? Because if you can tell me what your version of the five freedoms is, it's really easy to figure out what kind of firm you need to build. Right. Oh, I want to build. Right. I want to do some big thing and have a national footprint. Okay, you're building right an ensemble and a partnership and an enterprise. If it's hey, you know what? I just I want to be like those clients that you have that make a million dollars a year and take home half a million and take off a hundred days. And I just want my lifestyle practice. Okay, that tells us exactly how to build your practice. So we have a four-step coaching model, which is mapping, mindset, methods, and momentum. 
mapping is getting really clear on where you want to go and why. And I find that most people either think that they're clear, but they haven't aligned their vision with their priorities, right? And things like technology. So it's it's an ideal, but it's not necessarily part of the operating culture. Um, and so we, what we want to do is be really clear on what we want to build and why we want to build it and exactly what that looks like. The other option is people just don't have one and they're like, oh, I just, you know, I just get up every day and I go grow. And my response to that is always to tell people that people on a treadmill don't need a map. And so step one is what is it that you really want to build? Do you want to have a tech-centric firm or do you not, right? Are you preparing this thing to scale and sell it? Or are you really just trying to survive the forces until you retire? And I think getting really clear, like we have really, like you got to get real with yourself conversations with our advisor clients, which is let's just get really real with where we are, what what's working for us and what's not, and what do we want to build? And then I think my, my best piece of advice is just don't underestimate the, the value of mindset. Um, 90% of the advisors that I talk to when they have some big goal they want to achieve or some performance measure that they really want to improve, right, or some big idea they want to implement, when we, within like 15 minutes of having a conversation, like 99% of the time, it's never a methods issue. It's always a mindset issue. Like, what is it? And we can kind of peel away really quickly what it is they then need to do to take action when they've been able to create that awareness. So it's just, it's not the most common conversation we have in this profession. Um, but what I'm just seeing more and more is I haven't had the opportunity to share it in platforms like this one is it's, it's really one of the most important conversations we can have. I love it. Stephanie, thank you for that. I'm going to give a closing thought that goes to something we talked about here uh, just a couple seconds ago or minutes ago um, on embracing. 25 years ago when my dad started his wealth management firm, he had to call Schwab to get client balances or to make a trade. Stocks weren't even trading in decimals yet and transaction costs of trades were double digits. The industry has evolved. Now, our clients can check their account balances on their iPhone, another technology that we've only recently been introduced to. They can communicate with their advisors via text messaging, and they can get news on every stock in their portfolio pushed to them at the blink of an eye. The moral of the story is our industry continues to evolve, and looking back, it's actually evolved pretty drastically over the past 20 years. And the innovation has pushed our industry forward to providing greater access to information and access to people that are influential in our financial decisions. The challenge though is that with any type of innovation or evolution, it tends to be exponential in nature. Each innovation or advancement allows for the next advancements to happen at a quicker clip, which can lead to a challenge for the companies in our space that aren't yet evolving or innovating or adopting the change that is happening. Change is difficult and uncomfortable, especially when it comes to managing a family's life savings. The fact of the matter, though, is that our clients are going to expect us as a firm to innovate or they won't be wanting us to manage their monies for much longer. And so the question continues to be, what are we as advisors going to do to enable us to ensure we keep up so we can continue doing what we love? Simple answer in my mind, well, it's to just keep an open mind. Let change happen and be accepting of it as opposed to pushing it away. Stephanie Bogan, thank you so much for your insight, your time from Costa Rica. Maybe next time we can do it live down there. I would love that. Uh, and everybody out there listening to Bridging the Gap, thank you for tuning in and we'll be back with another episode next week. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. The Central.